the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Yes, indeed, and he's here to say good afternoon. Welcome to the Tuesday, March 7th edition of Lifeline. Wow, time flies when you're having fun. And uh, we're going to have some fun on the program tonight. We're going to do our best in the first hour to bust the Internet. (laughs) Maybe literally, perhaps figuratively, it just depends. And uh, to lead off the conversation, let me put this in context for you. There is a case before the United States Supreme Court that goes to the heart of questions related to who ultimately is culpable for some of the information that you see on the Internet, on social media platforms, Uh, and and I want to make a, a clear distinction between private operators of individual websites who, of course, as a publisher, are responsible for their content, but then there are other websites, many of which we use almost every day, be it going to YouTube for a video on how to bake a cake, to going to Twitter, to going to Facebook to see how the friends are doing, get information, whatever it might be. Any of those platforms where you can, as an individual, upload content or consume content and content that is, well, not created by the operators of Facebook, Twitter, YouTube at all, but rather hosted by them, and in some cases promoted by them. Well, that's our subject matter tonight. That's the subject matter that is being looked at by the United States Supreme Court. There is a case that recently, you'll recall, this is several years ago, a terrorist attack in Paris, France. And the argument by survivors of the victims was put forward that platforms like YouTube that hosted videos that YouTube did not create, but that they allowed to reside on their platform, and in some cases promoted unwittingly, perhaps, through the algorithm, meaning it's kind of quietly happening in the background, not by active intervention by human beings, that was then consumed by individuals who said, great, here's a lesson on how to build a bomb, let's go build one and blow some stuff up. I'm 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 giving you the sort of the, the shorthand reader's digest, digest version here. So now the argument is coming forward that section 230 should be repealed. Some are arguing that YouTube, Facebook at all should be held accountable for the content on their website. Though each of these Sites will argue we are not a publisher, we are simply a platform. It is third-party data that we host that is then served up to people that log in and, and consume our content uh, or the content of third parties, and therefore we're not responsible. Where is the dividing line between the two? And to be sure, this entire argument really goes to the heart of some very critical First Amendment questions 
you know, the old adage, you can't necessarily yell fire in a crowded theater without there being repercussions, right? I mean, that's that's been a long-held understanding that there are some arenas where there are limitations on freedom of speech. The bigger question here, which fascinates me, is how does this differentiate in terms of the, the picking and choosing and promoting between what these organizations, Facebook, Twitter, et al., do and what the newspapers have done historically down through the years? You write a letter to the editor. It may get published exactly as it is. It may not get published at all. It may get published with edits. Um that's a decision made by the owner and operator of the newspaper. And after all, they own it. If we understand clearly what the First Amendment says, it's not a prohibition against private industry, but rather um, one against the limiting what the government can do. So it raises lots of questions. And this is what the Supreme Court is um, ultimately potentially going to make a decision on here. And, of course, at the end of the day, uh, the question is, will this outcome favor which side? Will it have a potential chilling effect on freedom of speech? Does it essentially protect the Internet as we know it? Or could the rules of engagement be completely rewritten? To give us some insights as to this uh, very fascinating question, we're joined by syndicated talk show host, best-selling author, attorney, and CPA, Bob Zadek. He is the host of the nationally syndicated Bob Zadek Show. You can hear him locally here in the San Francisco Bay Area every Sunday morning at 860 a.m., The Answer. And, Bob, as always, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, This is fascinating to me because there are so many twists and turns in in so far as not only um, what this may mean for freedom of speech, but also what it may mean for the future of the Internet. Give me your take on all of this. And and let me start with maybe a fundamental question. As we look at the group of nine uh, before whom these questions are being debated, uh, you know, there's a a couple of octarians in that group that uh, for whom, uh, and if you've heard some of the questioning, it becomes clear, don't really understand the many layered complexities behind this question. Well, what what is your sense just in terms of of how well-equipped is the Supreme Court to even really fully understand the implications of this question? The Supreme Court was not elected to the Supreme Court because of their knowledge of tech. That's not how we select judges. Therefore, presumably, one can be a judge of the Supreme Not even presumably. One can certainly be a, uh, a justice on the Supreme Court without any knowledge of tech, technology, the internet, or the like. After all, what is required is a knowledge of the law and of the Constitution uh, and uh, a, a respect for those laws. That's what's required. If a case involves, let's say, technology, it is incumbent upon the litigants, the the plaintiff and the defendant, in their briefing, to educate the court on the issues, so that certainly the education is with a bias. They're supposed to be biased. That is, the litigants are. But that's how the judges learn from the briefs, 
and therefore you don't pick a judge based upon what they did, whether what their occupation was outside of the law. You pick them because of their respect for the law. So, so some of this uh, hand wringing that we're we're hearing right now, and I, I've I've read several blogs um, by folks that are you know distinctly in the the millennial class that have been hand wringing over. Oh my goodness, we have a bunch of octarians that are going to be making these decisions. They barely understand the technology, and I suppose if we went down that line of thinking, it would suggest that it, you know in a court case that the judge would have to understand um, the the fine details of how to commit a murder when they're deci- deciding whether or not the the, uh, the defendant is guilty or not. And, and that is not at all to the heart of what their job is. It really comes down to here's a presentation being made by both sides of the equation, both arguments, and now it is up to the judges to decide how this fits into the framework of the Constitution and therefore is it either constitutionally allowable or not allowable. Just like we elect representatives in the House and in the Senate and the equivalent in the state houses and even in the counties, we elect those people to represent us, not because of their knowledge of a particular industry. We elect them, if we are thoughtful, based upon their integrity, their intellect, their ability to make decisions and we hire them to represent us and to make those decisions we don't therefore when there is a statute or a bill they are considering what do they do they have hearings they have their staff okay staff learn about this and teach me so i can make an intelligent decision when i vote in the House or the Senate. So it's the same analysis. And therefore, I don't care about the depth of their knowledge on any particular industry. It's not relevant. Now, as to the issue you raise, the Gonzalez case, People, when you have conversations, whether you're sitting in the coffee shop or at dinner with your friends or walking the golf course and chatting with your golf buddies, when you have those conversations, this is the kind of issue that everybody seems to have an opinion. And the opinion is, you form an opinion on many or on several different levels. For example, there is what the Constitution says about it. Now, I am relatively uninterested in what my friends believe the Constitution says about it, because they are not constitutional scholars. Therefore, their opinion on it doesn't matter. There are other levels of having this conversation. The next level is, what kind, what kind of society would you like to live in? A society where the social media exercises their editorial decisions on what postings will be promoted and what will be suppressed and the like. After all, it's their website, it's their platform, they built it, private property. If you have a healthy respect for private property, as I hope our listeners do, then you will decide in favor of 
private property. After all, the New York Times, as you have pointed out, has total discretion which letters to the editor to publish, which op-ed pieces to publish. Nobody is troubled by that even though the Times is widely read. Nobody thinks the law ought to require New York Times to publish what we like. It's their newspaper. Go get your letter printed somewhere else. Nobody's troubled by that. So the question one has to ask is, is that a good substitute, a metaphor, an analogy? Is the New York Times like Twitter? where they can exercise control. Or what about a telephone? Does the carrier, does Verizon, is are they allowed to say, hey, Craig, I heard you saying a swear word on our telephone signal. We're going to deny you privileges. We're cutting you off. Well, no, the the telephone is not expected to screen calls, let everybody on. And if you don't want to talk to Craig Roberts, don't take his calls, block his number. The decision is made at the user level. Well, is that the, is that the analogy? Is let's use uh, Twitter, is Twitter more like that? Where you have a Twitter account and you, by building your profile, you tell Twitter, I don't want anything to do with ISIS. I don't want any hate stuff. I don't want any whatever. And you get to decide what you want to listen to, and you can block people. So Twitter is required to post everything, even the obscenities and the pornography, and it's up to the loser to say, block this from my account. So total control is at the user. So that's a conversation where everybody's opinion kind of counts because it would be interesting to see what kind of society we want to live in. And then there is the, the high level, the legal issue, which is, uh, you mentioned Section 230. Section 230 is a section of the Communications Decency Act of 1996, I believe it may be 1995. Section 230 basically says that the social media, it is called the 27 words that created the internet. Well, that's a bit of an exaggeration, but not much. Under section 230, 230 says that as to social media, as to any platform, they can never be liable for anything which is published on their platform, unless they create the media itself. They're liable for what they do, they're not liable for what other people do on their platform. Without that, social media would be sued every four minutes by some big lawsuit or somebody whose feelings were hurt, and social media, as we know it, would disappear. So that frames the issue. Now, every listener out there can form an opinion, a thoughtful opinion, on which alternative or which combination they like. That's what the Supreme Court is kind of deciding. Now, you, you invited me to speculate what the Supreme Court is likely to do. What they're not likely to do is make a decision that takes social media and destroys it. They're not likely to. So they're not going to do that. That's for sure.
Now, the, the justices are really tempted, and this was said in oral argument, they said, wow, this is really to be decided by what is called the political branch, which means Congress, Congress and the president. And they would they will probably punt a lot of this decision to the political branch, let them decide through legislation, since the Supreme Court does not make policy and interprets laws. Of course, what's fascinating with that is that it could be perceived by some to be sort of, uh, you know, kicking the can down the road, passing the proverbial buck. So Congress comes in and let's say they decide, yeah, we're, we're going to kind of clamp down on what social media can do. Um, the argument goes that they are platforms, they are not publishers, but then, of course, the twist to all of this is if I put up a piece of information that somebody else finds offensive, uh, shouldn't I, as the originator in the poster, be held liable? And is there any degree to which the platform has culpability if, if they have been responsible for promoting it? And all of us have had this experience. You go to YouTube, you look up you know, funny cat videos, and suddenly, my goodness, you're being inundated with nothing but funny cat videos. Where did all this come from? Well, the so-called algorithm behind YouTube has determined that Craig likes funny cat videos, so let's serve up more. At that point, does it move from being a Platform to being a publisher since it is YouTube that is making the recommendation. And that's where this starts to get very fuzzy. We're going to pause on that point, come back to more of our conversation with Bob Zadek. As you can see, this is a, a fascinating subject matter because it has the potentiality of impacting all of us. And, you know, maybe the right thing to do is to pass the proverbial buck back to Congress. But how do you go about rewriting the law in such a fashion that it protects basically the Internet as we know it, uh, while at the same time um, taking into consideration some of the subtleties related to, well, where are the limits? Or do frontiers have limits at all? Is this still considered a frontier? We'll continue to uh, explore these issues and more. Syndicated talk show host, best-selling author Bob Zadek with us this evening. And um, we're going to take a time up. We'll come back to more of this fascinating conversation. We'll talk more about Bob as well and how you can find out about his program coming up right around the corner. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. So you use Facebook every day. Maybe you're online, Twitter, uh, other social media sites out there, you know, whatever it might be, Truth Social, Rumble, etc., etc. Who do you want to have the final say as to the content? And um, just far, how far off the rails could this potentially get? How changing to the impact of the Internet might this be? Well, in part, this is what may be decided by the Supreme Court. And I say in part because, as Bob Zadek, our guest tonight, suggests that they may choose the Supreme Court to sort of pass the buck. That might be the smartest thing to do here, uh, because it seems to a certain degree, Bob, that this is kind of a no-win situation. That Yes, there's things that we all find that are incorrect, ridiculous, uh, you know, to the point of being offensive uh, on many of these platforms. But you know, to, to, to rely upon any of these organizations to edit, delete content, 
which has been often suggested, certainly post-election, post-COVID. But then it kind of comes down to, well, who's making these decisions? And, and, and who is it to decide on many of these topics what the final arbiter is, what the truth is, and what, what is a falsehood? And, and, and I think this is where it becomes a bit dicey, because suddenly it's beyond just simple editorial control to controlling the flow of information. So if, it, if the Supreme Court demurs on this, and it winds up being in front of Congress to make a decision as to the fate of Section 230. I mean, how, how do you go about deciding this? Well, the Supreme Court um, is not going to demur. They are going to, they have to decide the case. They will make a decision. And I suspect they will not find uh Google through its YouTube subsidiary to be liable. Now, the audience, as we discussed the Gonzalez case, I just want to help the audience understand the specific facts in the case because it's relevant to follow our conversation. What happened was, as you correctly point out, there was uh, an uprising um, an ISIS-led uprising, and there were some, the Gonzales had a family member killed. Now, why are they suing Google? They claim that Google, through YouTube, promoted a video uh, produced uh, by ISIS encouraging violence. And they claim that YouTube directed that video to these murderers who watched the video and were induced to commit the ISIS-inspired crime that caused the death of Gonzalez. And they say, had Google, through YouTube, not directed this video to those murderers, the murderers would not have committed the murder, and therefore YouTube is responsible. Now, what makes the case difficult it isn't as if Mr. YouTube, sitting at a desk, made a decision. The decision was made by AI, artificial intelligence, based upon what artificial intelligence detected to be kind of videos that the recipients would have wanted to see, based upon their prior behavior. It was all done through technology, not through a conscious human decision, if that matters. And therefore, all YouTube did was attempt to satisfy what artificial intelligence perceived to be something that this user would have liked. A pretty benign activity. And when I thought about the case, I thought about Spotify, where I listen to music. And Spotify is constantly paying attention to what I choose to listen to and sends me, hey, Bob, you might like this. And it's all done by machine. Now, the question is, I hate, I happen to hate rap music. If Spotify makes an artificial intelligence mistake and sends me rap music, and do I have a lawsuit against Spotify? Am I angry at them? 
Well, no, I'm not angry. I didn't. They, it was artificial intelligence. It's not perfect. So it's a benign activity. Sending me, you might like this rap music, was something I wish they'd do, but no big deal. So I find that to be a reasonable analogy. And it's very difficult for YouTube, which is a profit-making business, and just trying to satisfy listeners. YouTube is not consciously promoting the message that it transmitted to these murderers. It's just trying to make its users happy. So I find it impossible to find YouTube liable for that. I am great, but I find it to be almost impossible for me to figure out how I feel, and I often have strongly held opinions, where we learn about Twitter and remember the Hunter Biden laptop. Now, Twitter, exercising a right as a private operator, that I, my, my instincts are, it's their platform. They can do whatever they want. They can suppress whoever they want. I'm, that principle I'm comfortable with. But when I say to myself, my goodness, Twitter may have caused Biden to win an election by suppressing the laptop. I don't know if they did or not, but they might have. Well, Bob, I ask myself, how do I feel about Twitter having that kind of a power over people? And now I start to say, hold it, Bob, back off. Maybe... I want to have to be a more nuanced response. Maybe I'm not so crazy about letting Twitter do whatever the heck it wants because it's a private actor. Because when they start adjusting election results, I say things may be lost. Uh-oh, I'm not happy. And then I say, Craig, and then I will have made everybody's head explode. On the other hand, the Bay, remember the Bay of Tonkin, that fake battle that caused us to go into Vietnam. Yep. The newspapers all carried that. What about Remember the Maine, which caused the Spanish-American War? The newspapers all carried that. Well, didn't the newspapers get us into the Spanish-American War? Didn't they get us into Vietnam? And they did it through their power of promoting certain stories that really weren't true. So then where do I go? And then I say, I don't know what the heck I believe, Craig. I turn it over to you. Yeah, and I'm, I'm with you right there, Bob, because it, it does become extremely complicated complicated very quickly. And, and then it becomes, well, you know, if it's content that I like and that I agree with and happens to be in harmony with my political and philosophical and moral positions, then I'm okay with it. And if it runs contrary to that, all of a sudden I have a problem. And, of course, the difficulty here is... Every side has a stake, and no side has a stake. And for Twitter, not to pick on them, but, but for any of these platforms, is it about a political agenda, or is it just about making money? I, you know, after uh, Elon Musk came in and bought Twitter, he announced that this was going to be a very important uh, frontier and arena for the, the, the digital town square and so forth. And I thought, you know, I think you're, you think too highly of yourself. I, I don't know that they see themselves 
themselves as that as much as they see themselves as an organization that has a commodity that's called eyeballs that people wish to reach. And so, therefore, I'm on Twitter because I want to reach eyeballs or I'm buying advertising on Twitter because I want to sell my products to the people with those eyeballs. And so, you know, how we go about finding a happy medium in this gets extremely complicated. And I, what I want to have you touch on, Bob, when we come back after the timeout is the, the, the subtle aspect related to what is a First Amendment responsibility and what is not. My understanding of the Constitution is that the prohibitions against the infringement of freedom of speech is directed specifically at the government. So a private organization, back to the newspaper, if you write a letter to the editor and the editor chooses not to publish your letter, have they suppressed your freedom of speech? We'll talk about that briefly when we come back. Bob Zadek with us tonight. If you want to really get into some alternative conversation on a Sunday morning, you're, you're tired of the talking heads that all come to a, uh, a discussion on television or even radio uh, with an agenda, and it, and, it, and it doesn't seem to be thoughtful discourse. Well, if that's your conclusion, you're probably very accurate. If you'd like to find an alternative, a program that really gets into the meat of many of these questions, such as what we're discussing today and what the long-term implications are for the country, society in general, you specific, we invite you to tune in to the Bob Zadek Show. You can check him out Sunday mornings at 8 o'clock on 860 AM, The Answer, our sister station. He also has a presence on the Internet. You can find out more information about past guests, podcasts, Bob's books, other resources by going to BobZadek.com. That's B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K. Com. We'll take a brief time out back with some closing comments from Bob Zadek, and then we're going to turn a corner, really turn a chapter of the same book when it comes to somebody who expressed an opinion on one of these platforms and lost their job as a result. That's coming up with constitutional lawyer Brad Dacus, but more with Bob Zadek right after this. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Bob Zadek with us in this segment of the program online at bobzadek.com, B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K.com. Bob, I realize that there are aspects of what is before the Supreme Court right now, particularly as it relates to the future and fate of Section 230, that are layered. They are nuanced in many respects. But to the broader question, from a constitutional standpoint, when we we hear people all the time these days uh, screaming and yelling about their First Amendment rights. Take a moment, if you would, and educate us as to what the First Amendment is protecting and who is it protecting us from. You said it perfectly, Craig, as you always do, before the break, when you reminded our audience that the Constitution in general and the Bill of Rights specifically it guarantees that our rights, certain of our rights, enumerated rights and unenumerated rights, rights that are not listed, uh, our rights cannot be infringed by government. It doesn't in any way speak to whether a private actor can infringe upon rights. For example, for example, there's nothing wrong with a 
motion picture theater chain, and I should say remember them, motion picture theater chain says, we don't like Susan Sarandon, she's been too much of an activist, we are not going to show her movies in our theater. And they are free to do that. That does not in any way infringe in a constitutional sense on Susan Sarandon's rights to speak. So it's government only. And, and the issue gets complicated, Craig, when you ask yourself, how do you decide what is a government actor versus a private actor? Well, it seems too obvious to even discuss. But hold on a second. The evidence has been showing us that as to social media, Twitter for sure, and Facebook to a lesser degree perhaps, during COVID, the CDC and the FBI were all over Twitter telling Twitter, you know, the wearing Fauci says you have to wear a mask. Therefore, Twitter, it is disinformation for you to carry material by your posters on Twitter, which advocate against wearing a mask. And we, the government, the FBI, the CDC, would be quite disappointed, Twitter, if you, if you promoted views adverse to, to Fauci. Now that's clear, I'm not making it obvious, we all know that really happened. So the government sort of said, reminding Twitter, you know, you have a life because of a statute, Section 230. What the Lord giveth, the Lord can taketh away. Therefore, Twitter, we're the government. Therefore, if we have a preference, we recommend you pay attention to our preference. Well, there comes a point that Twitter becomes nothing other than a state actor because they are so much under the control of government, it's a distinction without a difference. And that happens throughout society. Banks have become government actors Banks do all kinds of things simply to carry out government policy. And the, the media has been full of such examples, and we know about many of them. And let's say, I'm not going to digress, but the Community Reinvestment Act in the 70s, where government said to banks, you better throw money into neighborhoods that have been underserved by banks, and we can't order you to do it, but if you don't, when you come to us and want permission to acquire a branch, which has to come from us, we will pay attention to your adherence to those policies. So banks have become so controlled by government, they almost, and maybe have already, crossed the line. So you're right in theory, but deciding when a private business really becomes a governmental actor is 
not so easy, and that's where your head really explodes. Yeah, no doubt. This this gets, as I said before, it gets layered very quickly, and uh, this is discussion that that clearly can go on for hours, weeks, months, years. Uh, we're going to pick it up at another time. And meanwhile, um, Bob, of course, talks about these types of topics with newsmakers and decision makers on his program, the Bob Zadek Show, every Sunday morning at eight o'clock on our sister station eight. AM, The Answer. So we invite you to check out the program and get engaged and get educated. Bob Zadek, host of The Bob Zadek Show. It's going to be fascinating to see as this thing inches forward exactly what not only the Supreme Court will ultimately do, but ultimately what Congress will do. I'm Craig Roberts, a timeout. When we come back, a man losing his job because he voiced his opinion on social media. That is Lifeline Continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Well, if you think the topic of Section 230 is is nuanced and ultimately going to be a challenge as the Supreme Court wins its way through all of the uh, aspects of that detail related to uh, the Internet and freedom of expression, uh, try this one on for size. How about a Georgia police officer expressed some thoughts from a Christian viewpoint on social media. And when his superiors found out about it, they put him on paid administrative leave. They wanted him to take it down. When he refused to do so, they showed him the door. Really? Yeah. Back to those nuances. Brad Dacus, constitutional lawyer, founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute, joins us. And it's amazing, Brad, in some respects, we're talking about um, what would control content on the Internet. And, And here's a step where... It seems as if, in the case of this Georgia peace officer, uh, his superiors decided they were going to be the final arbiters of truth and wanted to restrict his First Amendment rights. It seems to me in this case, since that's the action of a government official working on behalf of a government agency, uh, this is a bit of a uh, constitutional problem. Oh, it certainly is, Craig. And what we're talking about here is a law enforcement officer that uh, did nothing as far as his job is concerned. Uh, he was fired for his own private speech on his own time, on his own Facebook. And it wasn't hate speech. It was paraphrasing what the Apostle Paul said in the book of Ephesians uh, with regards to marriage. Uh, it wasn't spiteful. It had no slang terminology or, or, the, or, or the like. So uh, he was fired because of his religious beliefs and you know, we at, and we at Pacific Justice Institute, we have a case very similar to that uh, here in California. A teacher uh, who was a gym teacher in a high school, public high school in Riverside, uh, your Lupa Valley uh, uh, school district, and she was fired uh, for a similar reason because of her opinion. She said on the internet, they brought her in and they started interrogating her, and she was fired strictly and solely because of her Christian. Yeah, I have to wonder for a moment. I mean, if, let's say, that same individual was overheard in the lunchroom at work having a discussion over, you know, lunch there with a friend and voiced a certain opinion, and the the boss happened to walk through and overhear it, the boss called that employee in and said, Sally, you, you, you can't make those kind of comments uh, in the lunchroom during work hours. You need to go and apologize. I mean, 
wow, what a potential lawsuit that would open up. And I suppose at the end of the day, that's the whole issue, that this is this is not taking place during work hours. Um, it is uh, not anything that, that would necessarily impact the performance of an individual. They are simply expressing their viewpoint, their opinion. Somebody hearing it who doesn't agree is not forced to agree. They're not forced to sit there and continue to listen to it any more than, than you're forced to have to read what the guy has to say on Facebook. So in your, your mind, what, what's going on here? I mean, is there that much of a fundamental ignorance as to what the First Amendment is about that, that, that individuals operating in the name of and on behalf of the government feel as if that they can, they can ex- exercise control over speech? Yeah, unfortunately, that is the attitude. In fact, a poll was taken which found 55% of Americans uh, believe in free speech under the First Amendment, so long as the speech doesn't offend anyone. Uh, in fact, offensive was the word that they used to describe his his speech and, and justify uh, justification to have him removed. Um, so the reality is free speech protects all speech uh, as a general rule. Now, you can't harass people, so if he used name-calling, if he used terminology... That's a different ball game. Uh, if he said fire, fire, and there was no fire, you know, that's a different ball game. It's a health and safety issue. But just expressing it a, a, an opinion and viewpoint that is not necessarily uh, agreed by other people, that's why the, we have the free First Amendment, the free exercise clause, the free speech clause. Uh, I think he's got a great case. I know our teacher in Riverside County has a great case. And unfortunately, Craig, these are popping up all over the country, and that's why I'm glad we at Pacific Justice Institute have six offices in California and a total of 28 offices coast to coast uh, in 22 states. Let me get your opinion on something, and I don't want to go too deep into this because time doesn't permit, and and it's very layered and nuanced, as I mentioned at the get-go, but we just spent some time here with Bob Zadek talking about the ins and outs of the uh, Section 230 case that currently is before the U.S. Supreme Court. It it becomes difficult when we talk about, well, who's ultimately responsible? Is it a platform? Is it, uh, uh, you know, is is it publishing questions of this sort? But, But at the end of the day, the broader issue ought to be, as you point out, the whole purpose of the First Amendment is to protect the right of individuals to hold an opinion and express an opinion, even if that opinion may not be something that everyone agrees with. Otherwise, what would, you know, we'd all have to get along and there would be no need for the First Amendment because we'd all say things that all of us agree with. I mean, so so in, in, in my mind, it just seems to demonstrate a fundamental ignorance as to what the First Amendment is about. Right. And the First Amendment is about protecting speech. One of the things that protects the free exercise of religion, uh, protects against state hostility against religion, be the Establishment Clause, but free speech, um, even if that speech may be offensive, uh, as a general rule, that is protected and it must be protected. And of course, you know, uh, over 95% of all speech is now via the Internet, and uh, that's the new uh, marketplace uh, for ideas. And that's why we definitely need to have legislative reform uh, to clean that up so we can once again have a, a free speech. And uh, particularly when it comes to elections, we cannot have free elections unless we have free speech. We can't have free speech unless we have uh, reforms on the Internet to allow 
uh, differing viewpoints and perspectives. It'll be fascinating to, to see the outcome of uh, the case of this um, Christian uh, police officer in Georgia and in other cases, of course, as Brad Dacus mentions, uh, that they are handling here closer to home. Information available on the web. Check them out at pacificjustice.org. That's pacificjustice.org. There's Brad Dacus, constitutional lawyer, founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute. Six o'clock from KFAX. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.